Diane, 11.30 a.m., February 24th. Entering the town of Twin Peaks. It's five miles south of the Canadian border, 12 miles west of the state line. I've never seen so many trees in my life. As W.C. Fields would say, I'd rather be here than Philadelphia. Today is the 32nd anniversary of the events in the Twin Peaks pilot, which take place on February 24th, 1989, as an FBI agent drives into a small Washington town to investigate the mysterious murder of the local homecoming queen. And things go from there. So in this episode that you're about to hear, I'm going to provide previews from my very long, very in-depth podcast covering each of these episodes of this series, two seasons from ABC in the early 90s, a feature film, deleted scenes from the feature film that were released as their own package, and then finally, the season three aired on Showtime in 2017. I'm putting this message at the outset because I would like people who are not yet Twin Peaks fans to listen to a little of this until they get the warning to check out and uh, see if it intrigues them. Welcome to Lost in the Movies. I'm very excited for this episode because I'm going to be sharing work that I've been doing for actually about three years now, covering Twin Peaks in a podcast form, episode by episode, month by month for patrons. And I want to promote this material here so that if some of you are interested in this, maybe you'll consider becoming patrons yourself. Also, at some point, these podcasts are going to become public some of them starting later this year and then going into the year after. And they're going to be cut up into different formats, so uh, it'll be sort of a different experience. The way I do it for patrons is it's all one big episode. If it's really long, then I'll split the, I'll split the coverage into two. Uh, but, you know, it'll go for hours at a time. So for hardcore Twin Peaks listeners, uh, I think it can be a lot of fun to listen to something that way, go on a deep dive rather than take it in bits and pieces. So what I'm going to do in this episode is play clips from, I think, six or actually seven or eight different episodes, uh, just highlights of different sections. And I'm also going to start by playing a clip from my introduction to the series, so explaining the format so you get a sense of what it's like. And uh, before we begin that, just a few preliminary notes on what I've been up to and what I will be up to. Uh, on my site, I cross-posted all of the videos for Journey Through Twin Peaks Part 5. That was the big event this past couple weeks. I finally finished this part of the video, the long series uh, of video essays that I've been doing on Twin Peaks. This one on the years after the original series, leading up to Season 3. And there was a couple videos that were taking really long for me to finish. I finished one of them I talked about on the last episode about Mark Frost, one of the co-creators. And so with that done, I was able to compile these all in the order I wanted them and combine them into a, a more or less single video. It's due to spatial issues. It's divided up into two, but it's one continuous experience on Vimeo. And so you can watch the whole of Journey Through Twin Peaks Part 5 there and also see it lined up on my uh, site in its smaller chapters and in its longer form, as well as other spin-offs like the uh, video I made about the collaboration between David Lynch and his editor, uh, Mary Sweeney, on that. So if you're listening to this episode, uh, you may not have seen Twin Peaks, and you may just be curious about getting into it. I encourage you to keep listening for a time, but I will be playing, playing clips with spoilers at a certain point. I'll give clear warning of that. But I would actually like you to listen to the first few clips before I give you that spoiler warning because I've designed this podcast, this Lost in Twin Peaks podcast on my Patreon and eventually to be released publicly as something that new viewers of Twin Peaks can watch alongside the show as they watch it. There aren't spoilers on the podcast for upcoming episodes, except in some cases where, again, I give a warning on that episode of like, okay, from this section on we'll be discussing spoilers. Listen along, see if this subject intrigues you, but I encourage you to uh, give it a try. And if you're really interested, for $1 a month, you can have the most 
uh, well, one of the most in-depth companions for a first-time viewing that you could ever find. So consider that if you will. Uh, before we get going, I actually want to jump ahead a little and play my teaser for next week's uh, public episode here because I want to end this episode on a Twin Peaks note. So I'm just going to say right now, in a couple weeks, the next uh, Lost in the Movies public episode will be on the film The Lobster. And here's a little clip from that trailer for that. Did you read the leaflet? Yes, I did. As you understand from your brother's experience, if you fail to fall in love with someone during your stay here, you'll turn into an animal. Have you ever danced with anybody? Yes. As an animal, you'll have a second chance to find a companion. What sort of dancing did you do? Just depends on the music. Mind if I join you? It's no coincidence that the targets are shaped like single people and not couples. Okay, and with that work out of the way, we can carry on to my teaser, my preview, my promo, uh, my highlight reel for Lost in Twin Peaks. First up, here is the intro describing the show format. Uh, it's a little longer than this, but I've shortened it somewhat just to highlight the format aspect so you can have a sense of how each of these episodes is structured. We always start by returning to the beginning of the episode, hopefully recapturing for a moment that sense of what it's like to watch this episode for the first time, not knowing what to expect. And, you know, in this case, hearing rather than seeing how it begins. And I'm going to discuss that, kind of break down what we see in those first moments, how that establishes the mood. Then I'm going to move in toward the writer and director of the episode. Uh, in this case, it's the actual creators of the show, but often it'll be different people who come on board uh, just for that episode or for a few episodes. I'll talk a little bit about their history, their work, and uh, what they bring to the episode in terms of their own flavor. I'm going to provide a lot of context, particularly in this episode. In general, I'll do this as well, but this episode, it's going to be almost like a whole separate podcast of that. Non-spoiler information from behind the scenes, what was going on with the creation of these episodes. When it aired what was happening in the world at that time, what was happening in movies, what was happening in TV, and the ratings and the reception that this received. And I'm going to read uh, often quotes from critics and also fans of the time who were actually on an early proto-internet message board discussing this. And I'll also talk about my reactions as a first-time viewer to some of this material. The feel of this episode is going to be the next topic, talking about the mood, the style, this the kind of atmosphere that's on screen and then I'll shift more toward the narrative toward the overall structure I'll talk about the focus the central story and uh, oftentimes even mention where there's commercial breaks you know because sometimes that's a significant dramatic break in the material then we're going to move on to the main meat of this uh, podcast going forward who killed Laura Palmer we don't know how long that question will be asked but as long as it's asked I'll provide the new clues from the episode I'll look at the separate parts of the investigation and kind of what's developing there and then gather the clues together and look at the big picture. Then we're going to focus on the Laura story, uh, kind of, you know, with her murder as a centerpiece, but not the only thing we're seeing. That'll involve things like the Palmer family's life, her relationship to Bobby and James, her friendship with Donna, things we learn about her therapy, about her charity work and everything like that. After that, we're going to deal with another story section, the new Laura stories. And through these story sections, we're going to be talking about the different scenes, uh, organizing them this way instead of moving chronologically. There's a lot of podcasts that cover everything just as it happens in the episode. I like to reframe it somewhat. I think that gives it more of a point to do synopsis if you're actually breaking it into a new way of looking at it. So with the new Laura stories, that'll involve uh, anything that's new for this episode that they're bringing to the table. Then there's all the subplots that are not necessarily related to Laura. I think sometimes we'll find out that they are more than we think. But as long as the episode isn't making that connection explicit, I'll treat them here. So that'll include things like the Ghostwood plot and Shelley and Bobby and Leo's weird little triangle that we're getting a, a glimpse of here. Then uh, after discussing the new subplots, whatever that episode brings to the table including standalone character scenes that are just kind of one-offs. I'm going to list locations real quick just so we have a sense of all the places featured. This is like a really rich world that Twin Peaks creates that we have time to luxuriate in. 
Then I'm going to talk about characters, which characters are introduced in these episodes. I actually have uh, the screen time, so I know their ranking of who's in the episode the most. Uh, this was done for a character series that's ongoing on my site, and uh, it's kind of a fun little stat to play with. I'm going to talk about coffee, pie, and donuts. That, as you can already see from the pilot, is sort of a motif going through the, the series, and I'll discuss some bonus food as well. And then a feature called The Uncanny, which just deals with some sort of eerie... Uh, things happening around. So in this episode, for example, you know, the Sarah's weird reaction at the end of the episode. Then we ask probably the three core questions aside from who killed Laura Palmer. What is Twin Peaks? Who is Agent Cooper? And who is Laura Palmer? And I'll answer those based on what the episode gives us. Finally, I'll provide some readings and clips from non-spoiler pieces that I've created in the past. I have a huge backlog of Twin Peaks, so it makes sense to try and draw upon it here. Those will be shorter passages from either reviews or uh, video essays that I made. My journey through Twin Peaks series, which may quite likely be how you found this podcast, is my most popular work. It's a video series analyzing Twin Peaks chronologically through the series. So I'll provide clips of my analysis from that at the end of each of these as well. Then we get into the semi-spoiler section. In these, I'm going to talk about uh, introductions called the Log Lady introductions that precede uh, each episode when the series re-aired in 1993 on Bravo. I'm going to include those here because, while they're not really spoilers. They were created after the fact, and I think they offered a, pers a later perspective on the series after it was all wrapped up. And uh, for that reason, I'm going to put them here in case people want to just totally see the series the way it was originally seen without any introductions beforehand and they don't even want to know what's in those and also in this section i'll include semi-spoiler pieces that talk about the overall shape of the series without giving away specific plot details finally we'll have my spoiler analysis section as i said there'll be a safe little musical bridge so you can tune out if that's not what you want to hear in that section i'm going to read from my spoiler pieces things that i've written in the past that just overtly talk about how this episode fits in with the, the bigger picture. Then I'm going to give a few more details about the characters, like if this is their number one episode or their last appearance. Obviously, that's something I wouldn't want to say in the non-spoiler part. And uh, then I'm going to just go through and offer observations kind of chronologically through the whole episode and observe things that I would only know from you know the shape of the series as a whole. So that's going to be a lot of fun for veteran viewers to hear. And if you're a new viewer, you can always come back and re-listen to those parts of the episodes once you've watched the whole series. You can actually get a sort of a double experience with this podcast. Next, I would like to share a clip from my pilot coverage. This is where I talk about the characters of Donna and James as secondary leads in the pilot, uh, Beyond Cooper and the Sheriff and discuss the opening credits of the show, how they unfold, what they signify, and then start to get into the big question of who killed Laura Palmer. So this is about a five to six minute or four minute clip in this case. I think most of these clips will be like four to six minutes, somewhere in that range. The only real arc in this episode, the only thing that reaches an actual conclusion, is James and Donna coming together. It provides what little catharsis we get in an episode that's more about an open wound rather than any healing. To the extent that there are secondary stars in the episode after Cooper and Harry, they are definitely Donna and James. Bobby, as a villainous figure, is perhaps the third most important plot-wise. One note as well on the credit sequence, since, you know, going forward, it's going to be more or less the same week to week. This is actually a longer version of the credits we'll eventually get, so I might as well discuss this here. It begins with a bird, a shot of a bird, which is a nice segue from Blue Velvet, which was Lynch's previous uh, major work at this point. That had ended with this image of a robin with a bug in its mouth. And kind of, you know, they talk about in the story of the film. So suddenly to begin now with this other bird on a branch is kind of a nice little transition from Blue Velvet into Twin Peaks over the course of four years, basically. There's also an interesting motif playing out through the credits of kind of industry versus nature. We see the mill, we see the workings of the saws, and Twin Peaks, the title, even though it's about you know, it refers to these mountains, these majestic natural monuments. It actually appears on screen over the saws whirring and turning. And there's an interesting uh, little paradox, a little contradiction there to savor. And interestingly, uh, that will change going forward. The credit sequence, 
the Twin Peaks title actually will appear over the mountains week to week. Um, because of the shorter sequence, they just push everything together, and that makes a certain sense, and there's something really evocative and stirring about that image, but I love that. I love to just savor that strangeness of the juxtaposition between the title Twin Peaks and these this these human tools uh, going to work, you know, and there's something almost kind of violent about it, about the attack on the trees. I'm not the first one to point that out, you know, but that's something people have noticed about about this sequence and kind of how it you're uh, just un, in an unsettling way kind of sets up the story and uh it's also of course a juxtaposition between industry and nature which is a very lynchian thing and they even refer to that in the uh pilot and a dialogue of course that was actually probably written by frost here in twin peaks health and industry go hand in hand which of course is not really true now on to the main subject. Who killed Laura Palmer? Every entry of this podcast, we're going to go over the new clues that are presented. In this episode, they're all new clues. So we're just going to talk about everything that we find out, which is a lot in this episode. First of all, the body washes up on shore, wrapped in plastic. We don't have any particular significance to that yet. We just know that it's much an unusual way of kind of packaging your victim. We also learned that the mother and father expected to be her to be home, so she was out for some reason when she wasn't supposed to be. So if she was taken, she was either taken from the home or she snuck out. And of course, we learn later in the pilot that she snuck out. This fact and the first fact are introduced to us before the cops, but for most of this episode, the clues we discover will be through the cops and the FBI. Uh, they'll be there discovering it right alongside us. We're not given too much information that the detectives aren't privy to. We learn that the boyfriend of Laura Palmer is cheating on her. Uh, this is one thing that the cops never actually find out in this episode. Although it seems like uh, Cooper kind of suspects it when he says he didn't love her anyways. We learn that Sarah saw her coming home from Bobby's that night that she died. Uh, and and going upstairs. That again ties into the idea that they expected her to be home. And somehow she got out of the house. And that's part of the mystery it seems at first. So at this point, we've discussed the pilot episode. Uh, you probably want to check out here if you are a non-viewer yet of Twin Peaks. Haven't given the, too much away at this point because we're just talking about that first episode, but uh, we're going to get more heavily into the seasons. Next up, I want to jump to the end of season one and share a clip where I'm talking about Mark Frost, who wrote and directed that episode, and how he took Twin Peaks just, just from the pilot to that last episode of the first season, how there's already this strange evolution and how in a way the lack of the Lynchian surrealism in that episode almost feels surreal. So I describe that a little more in depth. And then I get into the structure of it. This is something, again, I do with every episode. In this, it's particularly intriguing because it's very tightly wound, the number of scenes escalating as the episode goes along. But now at this point, I love it as much for the way it is a somewhat skewed out of sync episode. The Twin Peaks filtered through a seemingly different type of TV show, except that Twin Peaks is actually capable of being so many different types of TV shows that this is it adds another level to the aberration. I appreciate how far the series can travel from pole to pole, how much it can contain. You know, like, how did we get here from the pilot and where will we go next? The feel of the episode is, apparently paradoxically, but actually quite logically, both more normal than usual and highly abnormal. That's because when a show as unconventional as Twin Peaks goes in more common, melodramatic, or action-oriented directions, what's normal for TV as abnormal for Twin Peaks. Everything feels a little heightened and disorienting, as if the raw material of Twin Peaks, the familiar faces of the characters, the architecture of the surrounding narrative, the surfaces of the sets they inhabit, have been transferred into a new context. In a way, this surrealism of the Frost episode reminds us of the work of David Lynch. Bear with me here. In Lynch's later films, stories and characters often warp beyond recognition. The people may physically look the same, but they'll go by different names and have different dramatic personalities. Martha Nockhamson compares this to the quantum concepts of entanglement and superposition. This is a much more subtle version of that, obviously, but we can't shake the sensation that we are dreaming up a skewed version of the universe we're already familiar with. Arguably, then, Frost crafted one of the most inadvertently Lynchian episodes of the show. 
one almost wonders if Lynch watched this episode, marveled at how far his own co-creation had traveled just by virtue of introducing other collaborators into the equation, and went on to create solo works that reflect this warping, splintering process, but through authorial intent rather than some inadvertent creative fallout. Did the season one finale give birth in some indirect manner to Mulholland Drive? As with the previous episode, which pushed toward this outcome while retaining much more of the connection to the essence of Peaks, there will be no uncanny section this week. But it might be said that this lack of uncanniness is in fact the most uncanny thing about episode 7. The structure of the episode ratchets up the excitement by escalating the cross-cutting between locations and storylines. This is a finely tuned piece of work, a tribute to Frost's many years in the trenches of weekly TV production, not just sincerely employing, but also self-consciously heightening the tropes of soap opera storytelling. Frost calls it a parody of the genre, but also a calculated effort to force ABC's hand into renewing the series. Instead of answering its one big question, the show asks dozens of new ones, and then asks us if we'd rather wait a whole summer to find out more, or just give up now. Frost knows he's got us where he wants us. 36 scenes is more per capita than any other episode. There's a buzz in the air right away, but episode 7 starts at a reasonable pace. It's only after the last break that we get way more scenes than usual squeezed into one act. We fade down to the first commercial break, just shy of 12 minutes, as Cooper tells Hawk he's got a trout on the line. This first act, six scenes long, sticks to three stories. The Jacoby, Donna, James, Maddie drama, the Bookhouse Boys sting at One-Eyed Jacks, and Audrey's initiation into the same. The first story takes place in two locations, while the second and third stories share one location. Arguably just one arc, Jacoby's, reaches a climax, although unlike most, it also receives a conclusion of sorts since we'll eventually spot Jacoby in stable condition back at the hospital. We return from the first break with Audrey uneasily listening to muffled laughter from her room and carry on until Josie wipes blood on her lips. This second act spreads the action out much more. Each of its seven scenes takes place in a different location, and most deal with different stories. Only Shelley and Leo are featured more than once. After another commercial break, we fade up on an establishing shot of the mill, where Catherine is searching Pete's office, and this act lasts until 34 minutes, when Ed cradles an unresponsive Nadine. The third act blurs the lines more between its six scenes, some of which take place in the same location, but deal with different stories, while characters travel between locations, Pete and Catherine, stories, Hank, or both, Ed. Finally, the fourth act is almost a mini-episode of its own, opening with a multifaceted sequence at the sheriff's station that intersects a half-dozen characters and at least three storylines. The episode then brings in a third situation at One-Eyed Jacks that it had neglected until now, and from here, things start to splinter. At the same time, many of the upcoming scenes will bring together characters who've seldom or even never interacted before. So even as the narrative fragments, we're being reminded how the different pieces are all connected to a larger puzzle. There are a whopping nine scenes here, some as short as 20 seconds, involving 18 primary characters, 19 if we include the unseen shooter separately, and at least seven storylines, maybe more. Keep all of this in mind when we break down how the next episode begins. And now we reach the point where if you have not watched Twin Peaks before, you only made it a little ways in, definitely stop here. We're going to be discussing uh, the outcome of the mystery of the show, which is a murder mystery, has huge implications for everything. So uh, definitely stop here. But of course, if you're interested, become a patron. Uh, Check out these episodes in tandem with your viewing of the series. So thanks for listening. And for the rest of you, let's keep going. One of my biggest episodes, both in terms of length and just the amount of material to discuss and importance, is my coverage of episode 14, where I'm discussing the killer's reveal. So here's a part where I talk about the production context of that episode, the writing and the shooting that uh, led up to it, and the time when it was actually made, because Although the episode went on the air in November 1990, it was shot during September 1990, and there's a huge difference between those two months, uh, as I'll discuss here. The greatest divergence between script and screen is in the actual attack on Maddie. In the script, it's inserted before Ben is arrested, and with good reason. In that available script, which is apparently the one used by production at the time, Ben Horn, not Leland, is the culprit. Now, this is an obvious decoy in case the document fell into the wrong hands, but it does raise the question, 
when exactly did Lynch and Frost uh, decide on this? What did they prepare together beforehand? And what did Lynch add himself? Uh, and also, what did Frost, as the sole credited author, stake out on his own? So it's, it stands to reason and has pretty much been confirmed in subsequent conversations with Frost that the jarring gesture of the white horse in the middle of the suburban home belongs to Lynch. The script indicates, and my understanding of Frost's sensibility also suggests this, that the concept of having the potential killer strike again and Cooper fail to catch him was probably Frost's idea, playing into his feelings about tragedy, martyrdom, and human failure. But also in the script, Ben, Reed Leland, chases Maddie off screen. There's no description of her brutalization and no suggestion that the viewer would experience it. That was, I think, almost certainly Lynch's contribution. Frost's work dealt with the aftermath and anticipation of violence, but rarely faced the actual phenomenon as head-on as Lynch wanted to do here. I also wonder sometimes if Frost might have prepared Ben to be the culprit at one point. He very effectively sets up the clues pointing towards him in this episode, and Frost's worldly, socially-minded perspective dovetails nicely with Ben killing Laura to cover up his sordid personal life and protect a larger conspiracy around town. This also matches with Frost's interest in the Kennedy part of the Goddess screenplay that he developed for Lynch around 1986, whereas Lynch was more interested in the Marilyn Monroe story aspect of it. I'll go into this idea of Ben as the presumed killer more in one of the Journey Through Twin Peaks clips near the end of this podcast, but the particularly Frost aspect of this is something that really intrigues me. Now, supposedly, Lynch and Frost had settled on the Leland Bob thing way before they were forced to make this episode, so it's not as if Frost wrote this with Ben in mind and then Lynch changed it. But Killer Ben definitely rhymes with Frost's vision more than Leland does, and I wonder to what extent he originally humored him way back when, whenever they figured out who they wanted it to be. There's so much more to discuss about this, from the critics and the viewers of the time, from my own previous work, um, about you know what it says about larger artistic trajectories and everything else. So this will probably be one of the longer episodes of this podcast. For the context of the time, uh, specifically the production, we know that episode 14 was shot after the disappointing Emmy ceremony of mid-September 1990, when the crew walked in with over a dozen nominations and then walked out with two relatively minor awards, although the editor and customer tend to get defensive about that description. Even aside from documents that have floated around over the years, we know this because it was the day after the Emmys when Ray Wise received some shocking news about what was in store for his character. He was deeply dismayed, not only by the vile acts he'd be forced to portray, but the realization that his role in the series was permanently altered, and perhaps even threatened long term. And he was told this just days before the actual shoot, maybe only one day before, along with Cheryl Lee and Richard Boehmer, who plays Ben Horn. Now, why Boehmer? Well, that brings us back to the script and the security concerns. Who killed Laura Palmer was a vital trade secret, and even if they intended to detour later and suggest that Leland was not always Bob's host or that something else was going on together, this would have been a major costly leak. So they not only wrote Ben onto the page as Maddie's attacker, they actually spent the time and resources shooting the scene that way. Poor Cheryl Lee had to be mock-beaten up three times that day, not just by Wise and Bamer, but also, of course, Frank Silva, who plays Bob. That way, even the crew wouldn't know what was truly being revealed. Lynch even took this so far as to try to shield the mixing crew from the screen as they worked on the sound, but I guess at that point uh, he had to concede that that was no way to work. The timing on all of this is fascinating. Production's been ongoing for two months, as Twin Peaks hype has been intensifying and intensifying. Arguably this moment, and I'm talking about the moment when it was shot in September 1990, more than any other, is the absolute peak of Peaks mania. The pilot had great pre-buzz, but it still took a lot of folks by surprise, whereas the drumbeat of publicity now was incessant, from the publication of Jennifer Lynch's Secret Diary of Laura Palmer novel tie-in, which is currently surging on the New York Times bestseller list, to endless talk show appearances and magazine covers, including the infamous Rolling Stone cover with Machinomic, Lara Flynn Boyle, and Sherilyn Fenn right in the middle. We've discussed this in the lead-up to episode 8, but that episode was filmed in July, so now we're dealing with something actually produced in the midst of this frenzy. This may have contributed, along with all of the dramatic significance, to the palpable energy on screen. Would Twin Peaks ever be this momentous again? Another big episode is episode 16, where the mystery of the show 
is, well, the mystery has already been resolved, but the investigation is resolved at this point with uh, Leland being captured and dying in captivity. So in this part that I highlight here, I ask the three questions I ask every episode and I, well, you'll hear the questions and you hear my answers. I think this was a particularly interesting episode to consider those questions in. And now for the three big questions of the episode that we ask every time, but seem especially crucial now. What is Twin Peaks? Who is Agent Cooper? And who is Laura Palmer? What is Twin Peaks? Not since the first season, perhaps not since the pilot, and maybe not even then, have we encountered a community so singularly focused. Even the most egregious exception, the Lucy Andy Dick roundelay dumped right into the middle of Leland's grand drama, relates to the bigger story when Dick's smoke implicitly unleashes the torrent that will extinguish Bob's fire for now. Otherwise, we're watching Twin Peaks' version of World War II. Everyone who matters is enlisted in the collective effort one way or another, and anyone who isn't doesn't matter. This heightened quality lends the whole episode an odd atmosphere of irreality. The stacked power of the narrative is as bombastic and effortlessly overwhelming as the thunderstorm that blows in and out of town on command. Contrast with the big events of the pilot, the funeral episode, or the killer's reveal, which feel more like mountains than thunderclouds, ominous, omnipresent, but not quite as overwhelming. The townspeople are able to live in their shadows without being crushed, to convert the metaphor, if Leland's capture is equally monumental, it's a volcano rather than a dormant peak. And what's left behind when this destruction is wrought? This is what remains for the season to deal with. Earlier big episodes avoided playing all of their cards. At the end of the pilot, our investigation had only begun. After the funeral, pain and confusion were only more acute, ironically dredged up by Laura's burial and the killer's reveal expanded rather than contracted our possibilities. The episode to which this one bears the closest resemblance, the season one finale with its confident, almost smug, go get em verve, paid for its feverish glee with the extended, moody hangover of the season two premiere. A half-dozen characters hospitalized, the hero wounded and grimacing as he slowly picked up all the pieces and reassembled them. Perhaps the follow-up to this investigation's conclusion can do the same thing in emotional rather than procedural terms. Is the answer to where's Bob now, the external woods, or within the small town that projects itself out there to escape its own demons? Who is Agent Cooper? As is often the case when Mark Frost takes the lead, Cooper is presented as a convincing mix of talented but struggling down-to-earth sleuth and firm, commanding authority figure. God help me, I don't know where to start, he mutters to Albert. It's our job to stop it, he asserts to Major Briggs. This is the Frostian Coop in a nutshell, defined not so much by his extraordinary ability to tune into the subtleties of his secretly harmonious environment, but defined rather by his determination to forge his way through the threatening wilderness around him. His tools and challenges may be more supernatural than Sherlock's, but he too is a warrior of willpower rather than whimsy. There are rather obvious ways this diverges from Lynch's sensibility, but in some, if not all ways, the two creators run parallel rather than at cross-purposes. Both require receptivity, which implies a form of humility from the brilliant detective. Both position Cooper at the height of his powers as more of an understanding shaman than an avenging angel. And both are convinced, at least in this moment, that their hero's simple fortitude is stronger than the diabolical evil he faces. With that said, nothing in his previous work, even episode 8, which allows for a wearier and more doubtful Coop, suggests David Lynch could have found a way into this episode. Whether he'll ever be able to direct Frost's Cooper in a way that splits the difference remains to be seen. Who is Laura Palmer? What an interesting question to pose and attempt to answer in this episode. Again, we must approach the subject as a paradox rife with rich contradiction. Does Laura's role in the resolution make her a hollow deus ex machina or the true detective hero? 
Is her pathos flattened or heightened by the retroactive conversion of her tragedy into triumph? When the shimmering mirage of the femme fatale is traded for the steady glow of the noble martyr, is Twin Peaks rejecting toxic tropes or reducing compelling complexity? Indeed, is the revelation of her essential goodness itself a confirmation of constrictive cliches, as Christy Desmond argued in her essay The Canonization of Laura Palmer? Or is it the gateway to a more grounded vision of a moral actor rather than a passive victim? As compelling as it is to respond both to every one of these inquiries, this accurate answer remains vaguely unsatisfying because we are still held at something of an arm's length. Laura is, by definition, an elusive mystery, and only her presence, not her after-effects, can tie these contradictions together. Dreams, memories, and visions can only take us so far. To actually feel in our bones what the show tells us in words, we would have to see the dead Laura live, move, and talk. And even Cooper does not have that power. And here is the latest episode that is available to dollar a month patrons, who of course get things on a six-month delay from the $5 a month patrons. So there's more in store uh, after this, but this is what's most available to those who join at the first tier. So this is on episode 18. It is uh, one of the early episodes of the mid-season, and they're already starting to get into some of the Lodge mythology. So I talk about that a little bit here. The connection of Bob to the woods up to this point has been kind of, uh, it's never really been underscored. We, we actually saw him more in the Palmer house and that one time in the Hayward house than we did sort of associated with the woods specifically. Like the darkness of the woods felt more like a metaphysical concept, but here it's being converted into something more concrete uh, for better or worse. Cooper says, well, Harry, the giant said the path is formed by laying one stone at a time. Have either of you fellows heard of a place called the White Lodge? And Harry seems surprised. Uh, him or Hawk says, where'd you hear of it? And Cooper says, well, it was the last thing Major Briggs said to me before he disappeared. And at this point, we get our big lodge lore moment where the Black Lodge is actually mentioned for the first time because we heard of the White Lodge. So Hawk says, Cooper, you may be fearless in this world, there are other worlds. Cooper says, tell me more. Hawk continues, my people believe that the White Lodge is a place where the spirits that rule man and nature here reside. And Harry says, local legend goes way back. Hawk continues, there is also a legend of a place called the Black Lodge, the shadow self of the White Lodge. Legend says that every spirit must pass through there on the way to perfection. There you will meet your own shadow self. My people call it the dweller on the threshold. And Cooper says, dweller on the threshold. And that's the part that begins the quote that we opened the episode with, uh, which I guess I'll repeat here. It said, if you confront the Black Lodge with imperfect courage, it'll utterly annihilate your soul. So here yet again, as in Cooper's speech to Roger, as in some of the dialogue, particularly, unfortunately, what was cut from the previous episode, but you can see in the script between Major Briggs and Cooper, establishing this theme of love and fear as kind of juxtaposing forces in this kind of spiritual struggle. And Cooper seems fascinated by it. And now, finally, something of a even more uh, it, it, uh, ahead, I guess, taste is episode 23, which I covered for $5 a month patrons. That will not be opened up to all patrons for another five or six months at this point, for I think five months from now. And this is the episode where Josie goes into the drawer pool. But what I want to share here is something that is also a component of all the episodes that I haven't shared yet, which is historical context. I've kind of semi-joked, but not really. There's a mini history podcast inside all of these Twin Peaks ones where I talk about what was in the news at the time, what was the number one movie, what was on TV. And I used Time Magazine issues, like what was on the cover, what was what were they talking about in those pages as sort of like a normie mainstream barometer of what was going on at this time. And it works because at one point, David Lynch and Twin Peaks were actually on the cover of Time Magazine. So you can see the larger zeitgeist fusing with Twin Peaks. Now at this point in uh, the early 91, Twin Peaks was already pretty passe. The media wasn't talking about it a lot. 
uh, they were talking a lot about the Gulf War. So that's what I begin with here. I get into some of the more amusing advertisements because I was able to look at Time Magazine visually online. And one of those is able to lead me right back into Twin Peaks and talking about the hiatus that the show was entering on at this time and uh, the figures involved with that who themselves have some historical political implications as I go on to discuss after this clip ends. One of the interesting things about looking through these issues is reading stories that are still ongoing and then going to Wikipedia or something and finding out what actually happened. Elsewhere in the issue, Carl Bernstein interviews Robert McNamara about the legacy of Vietnam and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Will two pieces view the war through a religious lens? A just conflict, or just a conflict, accompanied by a sidebar titled Islam's Idea of Holy War, accounts for the various Judeo-Christian theological arguments surrounding the Gulf War. It's illustrated by Pope Urban II and Peter the Hermit rallying troops for the First Crusade, and I seem to remember black and white photocopies of this piece circulating in either high school history or English classes about 10 years after the war, usually as fodder for group discussions or something to imitate. The other closing piece, Apocalypse Now? examines the roots and continuation of Armageddon expectations surrounding the Gulf War. I scrolled through the issue as I have the past few, using Time's Vault feature to look at the layout in its original condition, including advertisements like the one for McDonald's that declares balance in big block letters decorated by salad and milk alongside fries and burgers. I had to chuckle at the copy, which begins, We offer balance across our menu. Meat and potatoes, bread, fish, chicken, vegetables, milk and cheese. Lots of smart choices to build great meal combinations. One of my favorite ads in the issue is for People Magazine. It features a 105-year-old woman who is the, quote, senior adult student of the year, standing next to a young girl. The woman, who must have been born in 1885, is carrying a Muppet Baby's lunchbox. The old lady's name, by the way, is Palmer, Gertrude Palmer. The most relevant advertisement of all is for another magazine, Entertainment Weekly. It's a multi-page spread in which the publication boasts of its coverage of early 90s icons, bringing us full circle. For example, the print crows alongside citations of Madonna, Sinead O'Connor, and Ken Burns, we called Twin Peaks a phenomenon long before Laura Palmer was a household name. The timing of this advertisement is interesting because most of the other phenomena that it's mentioning as part of pop culture are like albums, videos, limited series that had their moment and then passed into the collective memory but Twin Peaks was still on the air. So they're talking about it almost like it's already over, but not quite. This was the week, though, that ABC did announce, or I think this week or over the next week, before the next episode would have gone up, that it was pulling the series off the air without further notice. So it looked like probably this was it and the show was going to get canceled. A six-week period of turmoil and excitement began. While a show ingloriously disappearing from its time slot is sadly routine, especially when the ratings and reception are as dismal as Twin Peaks had become, the reaction to this borderline cancellation was very unusual. Vladimir Lenin once said, after his uh, party broke up into smaller factions that he considered more devoted, better fewer, but better. And you could say the same about Twin Peaks fans. There weren't that many left, but they were far more passionate, committed, and creative in their devotion than the viewer base of shows with much larger audiences. Two of those devoted fans were about as far from Lenin as you could get. A couple young and very right-wing Republican lobbyists, Michael Caputo and Keith Poston, were huge fans of the show and decided to combine their professional skills and personal enthusiasm. Caputo had worked with Ollie North to spread anti-Sandinista propaganda in Nicaragua in the 80s, while the younger Poston was inspired to get into politics by his devotion to the arch-conservative North Carolina senator, Jesse Helms. Dedicating themselves in this case to a Fictional, rather than a real-world Black Lodge, the duo teamed up to coordinate a nationwide campaign, pressuring ABC into bringing the show back on the air. They dubbed their group Citizens Opposed to the Offing of Peaks, or COOP for short, COOP. One more note about being a $5 a month patron. As I said, these episodes are released six months ahead for the top tier, so that means You're going to be getting the late season episodes where the show is making its comeback right now in the spring going into the summer 
And then July and August are going to be two of the biggest episodes that uh, I'll be doing for this podcast. The finale in July and Firewalk With Me in August, which may also go into September. And also when I finish the Lost in Twin Peaks episode coverage, I'm planning on pivoting into some interviews with other uh, Twin Peaks uh, commentators like John Thorne and, uh, and others. Uh, I've done some interviews with him in the past that people really seem to like. You'll get access to those ahead as well. And finally, I want to jump way ahead to the end of season three. I actually covered season three before the rest of the episodes. It was in a way a proto Lost in Twin Peaks. It wasn't called that at the time. It was just part of my regular patron podcast. And these episodes will be somewhat repackaged. New material will be added to bring them more in line with the Lost in Twin Peaks material when they go public. But for now, they're all they're all available to the $1 a month patron. So even though they're after these other episodes that I'm releasing for the top tier, they're because they were part of this earlier incarnation, they're, they're all available right now for the anybody who joins and becomes a patron. So this is uh, part 17 and 18. I got into a great uh, uh, deep dive on that, going into every aspect of it for three hours digging into the different material. And in this case, I'm talking about uh, the eternal subject of, of Twin Peaks, you know, Laura and Cooper and their relationship or perhaps non-relationship and, and how that bears out here. So I'm going to play that clip and then we'll go out uh, into our outro for the show and we'll see you in a, in a couple weeks. But uh, before we do that, I just want to remind you the way to become a patron is to go to patreon.com slash lost in the movies. You can access all of this material. Uh, the best way to navigate it, though, is through my site. Patreon can be a little hard to scroll through, especially these podcasts going back to 2018 or so. So uh, that link will be in the show notes. And um, let me actually just read it here aloud to you as well, because I know on Apple Podcasts, sometimes the, the links aren't clickable, which is kind of annoying. But here's where you would find the full lineup for Lost in Twin Peaks, including the season three stuff. You can just click on, it'll take you right to the Patreon posts. It's lostinthemovies.com slash P slash lost dash in dash twin dash peaks dot HTML. So lost in Twin Peaks with dashes uh, between the words dot HTML and a P for page after the Lost in the Movies domain name. So hopefully that's clear. If you go there, you can look at all of the episodes, jump to the one you want to listen to. There's show notes on Patreon, detailed show notes with links galore to anything I discuss that's out there that's available. So you can actually go off on tangents with that too, which is a lot of fun. So enough of the buildup. Here's how we're going to end with a clip discussing the very end of Twin Peaks, taking us on the uh, end of our little mini journey that we've been on throughout this podcast episode. So thanks for listening. And I hope I'll see some of you there. This is a very like Arthurian aspect to this, where Lara is like the grail or the just the, the object that has to be kind of pursued or attained or transported. Um, there's no like attempt to engage with her as an individual. You know, he's gentle enough. Do you recognize this place? Can you come with me? Like he's not forceful or rude at any point but there's just like there's no connection between them and I did a visual tribute once to Cooper and Laura many years ago uh, right before I made Journey Through Twin Peaks I think it was actually the last piece of Twin Peaks work that I did before the Journey videos and in that you see them sort of reaching towards each other through these like literal screens but also just sort of figurative screens like this passage of time the difference of space this person who was dead before the other person even found out they existed and the sort of poignant connection between them but here it's just a total disconnect you know and uh, it'd be fun to sort of make a sequel to that Cooper and Laura visual tribute with their scenes together in the return and kind of look at that big picture of it. And, and so there's just, there's, it does feel like there's something meta going on here. Lynch said in 2000, Twin Peaks is dead as a doornail. I'm never going back to it. And then he changed his mind. He's, Frost came to him with some idea and Lynch liked the idea and said, you know, the magic started working again or something, blah, blah, blah. And that may be true. But I do think there's also still an element of can't go home again here. 
And I think this is like the manifestation of that. Like, okay, here it is. We brought them back together. And look at how elemental, look at how elemental the end of this episode is. I pointed out in the first you know, part of Journey Through Twin Peaks that the core elements of the series that everything else is kind of peripheral to or revolves around, that the elements that make it a story and that fall apart and disconnect at various times and are sort of brought back together but kept at a distance are Cooper, the town, and Laura Palmer. Cooper moves across the train of the town to pursue Laura Palmer's mystery. Well, what do we have at the end of this episode? Everything else has been pared away. We have Cooper, we have the town, and we have this Laura who is both there and not there. We're kind of back to square one, but now in this very sort of almost dry form where it feels sort of rote, like, okay, here we are, back in Twin Peaks, here's Cooper, here's Lara. What's going to happen? Nothing, I guess. It's just, there's no, there's nothing there. There's nothing pulling them together, you know, until, of course, that last final moment. But, you know, driving back into Twin Peaks, you get that very flat feel. It's like, it's really that sense of like driving into a place at night and very matter of fact, very mundane. Everything, you know, they they cross a bridge, this, the drive past our Double R Diner. And uh, Lynch made a point with Peter Deming of making all the diner scenes just glow in The Return. Like he wanted it to match. And I think with the sheriff scenes too. I don't know if he said this, but I feel it with the sheriff scenes. Wanted that to like match the look of the old series, even though there's a sort of a melancholy to it because it's digital, it's 25 years later. But, you know, there's sort of an aura, an after aura of that original vibe. Here, there's none of that. It's just like, here we are driving through the locations, which is just great. <laughs> it works It works so well to do, to convey the mood that they they want to convey here. So Carrie and Cooper, they pull up to the Palmer house. They get out, they even hold hands. It's a sort of, strange moment where it's just something they feel like compelled to do and they walk up the steps to the house and uh knock on the door and who answers Date, February 23rd, 1989. I'll find it for you. It's slippery in here. 